So yeah, I'm Rob MacDonald. I work at Teesside University. Um, here's my uh, email if you'd like to contact me. Uh, here's my, I think you call it a Twitter handle, don't you? Um, are we tweeting today? Oh yes. I've got the hashtag, Katie. Hashtag? It is SRHE event. Sorry, That's the usual one we use for all events. Event or events? Event. Okay, we're in business. Yeah. Uh, I do, you know, if you can't hear me, okay, do shout up. Am I okay at the moment? Yeah? Am I okay? Yeah. <laughs> um, If you have heard me talk before, which most of you won't, apart from Katie maybe, you might recognise this slide. This is sort of me now, uh, uh, with a level of anxiety and, uh, and sort of self-doubt, uh, and some caveats and disclaimers need to be expressed before I get going. Um, I, I, first of all, thank you for having me. Thank you to the, to the Society of Research and Higher Education. Um, but I'm not a higher education researcher. Uh, uh, and I realise, uh, I'm increasingly realising there are so many people in the room who are more expert than me on some of the questions that I'll be confronting. <coughs> so, apologies for that. Uh, um, I feel a bit of an interloper, but Dr Katie Vigers invited me to come, so of course I said yes. And I'll be looking at Katie too, she can frown and boo and hiss when I go completely <laughs> wrong. Uh, my background is um, more to do with the study of youth, youth transitions youth studies as a field or interdisciplinary field and I suppose secondly the sociology of work, unemployment, that sort of thing. Um, and what I want to try to do is reflect on youth transitions to and from university in a context of change, socio-economic, political, generational, historical change and to identify, if this doesn't sound too grand, what I think are signs of a crisis in the relations of education, economy and society at a global level, at a national level and locally in Teesside in North East England. It's sort of organised a bit like this, briefly talk about my approach, then move through what I think some of these signs of the crisis might be, then how on earth might we explain everything that I'm talking about and some very brief conclusions and including pointing to one or two uh, interesting or live questions. So, that's what we're doing. So, uh, a few years ago, 2011, I wrote an article, uh, and the first part of the article asked the question, what is youth studies for? And I think it's a question we don't ask ourselves enough. Within youth studies of late, uh, there's been very interesting discussions about the value of a political economy perspective to trying to understand youth. These are um, uh, books by uh, Sukaria and Tanak and by Jim Cote. Uh, and there's an ongoing debate in Journal of Youth Studies with some very interesting articles, uh, which if you're interested in this stuff, I'd encourage you to look at and join in with. Um, the argument of people like Sukaria and Tanak is that youth studies, including the Journal of Youth Studies, which I, I'm an editor of, we overprivilege uh, research with or on young people. 
That's what we tend to do when we do your studies. We research, talk to, survey young people, particularly paying attention to their lives, subjectivities, agency, and so forth. But we forget or don't do enough uh, of, of looking at how powerful social actors and forces construct youth and how young people are situated materially, e.g., for instance, in terms of class inequalities, in a global political economy of neoliberal capitalism. I want to draw on some of these ideas, or the general way of thinking in this political economy approach, in what I'm talking about today. And um, one of the themes of that is to try to move away from just a UK perspective on youth issues um, to a more global perspective. I've got what well, I think are some interesting bits of research to share with you. When I looked at the programme of, of, of participants, I'm just checking now, I was a bit taken aback to see that Ken Roberts was going to be speaking, uh, not speaking yet, participating today, not here yet, so I might get through my talk without him being here. I, I quote him a lot, uh, and, 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 and very respectfully. Uh, he, this was one piece of research that he was involved with, and it's a thing that I, it's, it's, it's an idea or a concept or, or a bit of research that I, I come back to quite a lot. It's called Waiting for the Market. Published in Journal of Youth Studies, Ken was one of the authors. It, and they did a little bit of research in two towns, one in Georgia and one in Armenia, uh, looking at young people and their lives in the post-communist society after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the collapse of the Soviet economy. And the basic question is, what do young people do and where do they go? What are their transitions? There's very high unemployment. They surveyed and found about two-thirds of people were unemployed. Higher education was popular and increasingly so. Somewhere, they estimate, up to 80% of young people going to university. They quote an education department official. Most of the local young people go to the local universities. They do not get jobs but the tradition of education continues and it gives the young people something to do. Uh, Ken uh, uh, and the other authors look at what young people's reaction is to this context, to whether there, is no, whether there isn't a market economy. One economy's gone, but there's nothing there yet replacing it. So young people go to university, get their degrees and come out and... Hello, Ken. <laughs> Shucks. Those who remain and, 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 and those who, who remain may never abandon hope that the market will arrive eventually, if not for them, then for their children or grandchildren. At the time of our fieldwork, the local populations were relearning the arts of living without profit jobs. That's the first little piece of research to quote to you and to share with you. And that concept of waiting for the market, waiting for the market to arrive, reminds me of this notion of emerging adulthood. It's a US idea from psychology. J.J. Arnett <coughs> has popularised it. That this is a new life stage, he says, of the early 20s, typically if you're a student. A time of possibilities, of choice, of hope, of experimentation, where the world seems open. We can debate about the usefulness of that idea, but it also reminded me of a concept which comes from global South research of weighthood. So here young adults' aspirations have been raised partly through their engagement with global consumer culture via social media, IT and so forth, but they're blocked from making transitions to a successful adult. The economy isn't there for them. So their weighthood is one of prolonged dependency, boredom and unemployment, underemployment. 
not really the same sort of thing as emerging adulthood. Craig Jeffrey says this, at the, almost the precise moment that people formally excluded from schooling have come to recognise the possibilities held out by education, opportunities for these groups in the global south are disintegrating. So emerging adulthood or weighthood, which is a more useful concept for us in the UK. Um, I've had the privilege to be involved in uh, a recent, or it's just concluding really now, uh, a Framework 7, EU Framework 7 programme uh, called Power to Youth. There's another sister project which is, runs parallel with it called SAWA. These are looking at the transitions and experiences of young adults in Middle East and North African countries. Those are the ones that we looked at in our study. I'm looking at questions about uh, the exclusion of young people. These were, this was a research program set up in the sort of optimism of the Arab Spring. And how can EU policy help assist with the sort of progressive democratic, democratic forces that seem to be developing then? Six years down the line, of course, this is a very different sort of context. War, terrorism, migration, successive autocratic governments, and the role of the deep state in perpetuating power and inequality. Some of the things we find are similar to UK youth research, but the sorts of extremes that young people in these countries are facing, particularly in terms of violence and physical safety, are of a different sort of character to, to what's happening in the UK. We know that the Arab Spring itself, there was a number of factors which led to those uprisings, those revolutions. Political repression, corruption, poverty, and also graduate unemployment. So at the time, Tunisia's unemployment rate for graduates was estimated to be something around 45%. You don't need to stick too accurately with these figures, but it was high. So these are countries which in the post-war period had the expansion of professional employment and jobs for graduates and an expectation that people who went to university would get good jobs afterwards. And there's still that strong aspiration and idea that that will happen. But we now have a situation where the economy doesn't provide for that. There's still some in inward investment from multinational corporations, but the sorts of jobs that are provided are lower level assembly work predominantly, not higher level graduate employment. So there's a mismatch between graduate supply and demand. I don't know if you can see this table here, this chart. It's astonishing. So in Egypt, look at those rates of unemployment. If you're a graduate, you have an unemployment rate of 34%. If you're a female graduate, it's about 48%. If you have the lowest level of education, you have an unemployment rate of 5%. So you're more likely to be unemployed if you're a graduate. That's quite significant. Moving back to the European context, we can look at what's been called the precarious, horrible word, precarietization of European youth. In this country, well, what's his name? Alan Milburn, who's inverted commas, the social mobilities are, uh, has taught, has said virtually the same thing as this quotation, as well and sociologists have, have made the same point too. This is probably the first time, at least since the Second World War, that a new generation faces the future with less confidence than the previous generation. 
this is a generational crisis, or this is how it's being depicted. And you can see it in signs of unemployment, of NEAT, and high rates of underemployment, including for well-qualified young people. You know this book? It's very influential in the youth studies field, in various fields. So Guy Standing talks about how the rise of neoliberal flexible labour markets from the 1970s onwards have given rise to a new class, a new class that's defined by the insecurity of life and insecurity of work. The class is called the precariat, he says. And this is a class which has a mass membership it's diverse in its membership and it's global in its nature. But youth, quote, youth are at the core of the precariat. In the precariat you'll find careerless graduates, migrants, unemployed young people, the working poor, and people who are insecurely employed. So quite separate sets of situations. Uh, with colleagues, uh, I've undertaken research in Teesside. We did a book which was called Poverty and Insecurity, Life in Low Pay, No Pay Britain. And what was that What that was looking at was the way that working class people, not just young people, their working lives aren't about complete unemployment. It's not about complete exclusion from the labour market and complete <coughs> unemployment. It's about young people churning between jobs and unemployment, and jobs and unemployment and back again, what we call the low pay, no pay cycle. And that pattern of economic marginality is one that lasts for young people through their 20s, 30s and 40s. And standing, he came to visit us up in Teesside, and that's, he uses our research in that example of one of the, if you like, subcategories of the precariat. But he's also talking about people who are graduates, uh, uh, who, who, who are caught in this position. Sukarea and Tanak in their book Youth Rising point to this question about social mobility and does a degree give social mobility <coughs> equal social mobility does it give you the golden ticket and in the absence of more collective or welfareist or social movements that might help us to do this university becomes the best possibly the only route to get on the way to for personal advancement to good jobs to higher standards of living this is true for the UK I think and it's true in lots of different countries this is where I get particularly anxious because I suspect there are people in the room who will know the details and arguments about these sorts of things far more than I do so graduate destinations having a degree we know increases the chance that you'll have a job it increases the chance you'll have a higher skill job uh, it will give you a greater chance of having a better paid job. That seems to be true. But we also know that the effects of having a degree are reduced if you're female, if you're black, if you do a social science degree, if you get a two, two or a third. The chart, you can't really see it properly, but it shows, a, the, 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 uh, this is the ONS figures, <coughs> show a gradual decline, just gradual, in the rates of graduates moving into higher skilled employment between 2006 and 2015. There's another chart which I could have shown you which shows that if you're an old, the older you are, the greater chance you have of getting a higher skilled job, which suggests that the longer time you spend in the labour market, the greater as we know this. 
I think one of the things this chart doesn't show us is how these processes or effects are also disaggregated by university and by region. Let's imagine <coughs> University XXX. Let's imagine somewhere in the northeast of England. Uh, this is a university which recruits its students predominantly from the local area. Yeah? You know the sorts of universities I'm talking about. Perhaps you work in them. Uh, it does very good things. Yeah? And its, its students come from this place. And its students go back out to this place when they graduate. For very good reasons, they go, they stay within the local labour market predominantly. But this is a depressed local labour market which has not an awful lot going in, in terms of graduate employment. So, the rates of graduate employment rates of employment and rates of graduate employment are lower in places like this. This chart here uh, is quite an interesting one. It looked at, you know, so for this XXX university, around 65, only 65% were in full-time work and study. The, the interesting bit, though, is the survey that, that, that showed that the student, the people who were in, in sorry, the people who were in jobs only 40% of them reported that they were in jobs that required a degree. 18% of them said it, the job didn't require a degree, but the degree helped them get the job. Oh. Anecdotes. This is a little anecdote or a story or, 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 or a message from a student that I got a few years ago. Uh, and it sort of it, it comes to mind when I think about some of these questions. Uh, this is Rebecca. She did a degree called Youth Studies. We had a great degree called Youth Studies at uh, Teesside. She got a two one. She graduated in two thousand and ten. She was one of my best students. Yeah, she did really well. She was bright, bright, funny. And she sent me an email. And she said, "Just thought I'd email, ask you how you are. As it's nice to keep in touch." I thought I'd let you know I finally got a job. These are her capitals. It's, a, it's as a temporary education assistant with a wildlife centre. It's not what, exactly what I wanted, but good, good for now and sounds like it'll be fun. Then she talks about how she's been doing volunteering and gives me a little critique of the services she's been involved with. And then she says, anyway, just thought you might have been interested in what's going on. I feel so, it feels so good to be, on, to be employed. I start on Monday and I can't wait. It's good to know that my degree might eventually get me somewhere. Ha ha. <laughs> now, this is a part-time job. It was temporary. It was at the minimum wage. Uh, it took her nine months to get this job. When I wrote, well, they sent me the reference afterwards to write, and I looked at the person's spec, and it said that the person was required to have a, quote, good level of education, e.g. GCSP. E passes in, in English and maths. So, moving from some signs of a crisis to thinking about how we might explain this. Certainly in my area of work, I come across this sort of argument, this sort of orthodoxy, very commonly from, in policy, and also from some academics. It goes a bit like this. The youth unemployment really is the outcome of low skills <coughs> and low aspirations. That neat young people 
need to have more skills and more aspirations. And if we have those things, if we make it harder for them to get benefits and harder for them to live whilst on benefits, and if we pressure and engage them back into education, upskilling through expanded FE and expanded HE, we will magically solve the problem. And this is partly because the number of low-skilled jobs is going to decline, or has declined, or will decline drastically, and that we need more graduates. I'm never sure whether it's current or coming, the high-skill information economy. In the 1980s, there was a thing called uh, voodoo economics, under the Reagan period. This is the idea that trickle down, you know, if we make the rich rich, their wealth will trickle down to the rest of us. Voodoo economics, as it was called. I think what I've just described on this chart is voodoo sociology. It's mythical, it's magical. And I think it's nonsense. We've certainly seen an increase in the supply of better skilled workers uh, in the UK and globally. This, the book Global Auction just describes this very well. But there's not been an, an equivalent increase in the demand from UK employers for skilled and graduate workers. Keep and Mayhew described this, described part of the problem like this. The upskilling strategy ignores, quote, the scale and persistence of low-paid employment within the UK economy. The numbers of jobs requiring little or no qualification appears to be growing rather than shrinking. And Sisson's writing for the um, Work Foundation, I think it was, talks about this or explains this in terms of an hourglass economy, where, yes, there's been a growth of jobs in the top, the economy, but also growth of jobs at the bottom, lovely jobs, lousy, lousy jobs, and a hollowing out of the middle. In that context of that hollowing out, we have this problem of underemployment. Underemployment appears in different ways. You can see it in people working on part-time hours when they prefer to be working longer, zero-hours contracts and so forth, so involuntary part-time work. Underemployment, I think, take, can take a form like I described before, of this low-pay, no-pay cycle. But underemployment also can be understood as overqualification for jobs. Now, Tees Valley Unlimited are, are a LEP, a local enterprise partnership. Uh, they are not the sort of organisation who are known for underselling the region. Yeah? They tend to be a bit gung-ho and a bit positive. But they say this. There is significant underemployment of well-qualified people in Tees Valley, which is where I work. With science graduates, for instance, working as school lab technicians and in call centres. I might be getting all of this wrong, and you can tell me. But does it look a bit like this? With this oversupply of graduates, we have the declining labour market value of the degree, especially when you put it against the rising cost <coughs> of the degree. But you have an increased need for a degree because there's so many people have got them. If you're competing in a saturated labour market, so if you don't have a degree, you're not going to do very well. And that applies even for non-graduate jobs, because people will bump down. 
So therefore, you have an increasing demand for degrees, including from non-traditional and working-class students, like the students that I teach. So therefore, we have an increasing oversupply and increasing decline. It's just, this is what I see as the crisis. There are all sorts of other elements or aspects to it. So what you then see is very fierce competitions in the market between universities and between courses. You know this. We get measured and assessed in terms of our graduate destination stats and our employability characteristics on the proportion of our students who get good degrees, i.e. a first or a two-one. Do you do this? Do we do this? I was external examiner at another university and they looked at every single exam board. They would do the spreadsheet of how many students have got a good degree, i.e. a first or a two-one. 75% the going rate at that university. <coughs> wasn't like that in my day. <laughs> National average is 70%. Yeah. So what does that mean? <laughs> uh, increasing pressure on staff to give, uh, to give higher grades. What are we doing here? Are we engaged in mis-selling? Summing up. So there is an institutional crisis, I would say, in the fit between education, economy and society. A political economy framework can help, particularly in terms of global comparisons. And fundamental to this, I think, is the oversupply of graduates here and elsewhere. Professor Ken Roberts wrote an important book called Youth in Transition in 2009, which was based on lots of research over a long period, different sorts of methods, different countries in East and West Europe. And a very useful and important sort of analysis, which actually, because it was comparative, a, a, a strong argument of the book was actually those countries in the East are giving us a sign of where we are going. Yeah? Their trends are ones which we are now following. And I think we can also see that to an extent from this research in Middle East and North African countries. So... Uh, Forgive me, Ken, but I've merged two quotations here, as you'll see. So young people today are excessively ambitious relative to the jobs that the economy offers. There is an overall shortage of jobs, not least job, good jobs, and therefore underemployment becomes the new global normality for youth. Behind all this, there are, think, are some really important and significant sociological questions. Uh, I'll just share two with you, but it might actually be one question. I think these are things which are live and you know, that I want to get engaged with. Should we, so some sociologists and theorists now talk about youth being a generation and that there, 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 there's enough shared between them to override some older divisions by class and gender and so forth. And this common experience of the precarity, for instance, unites young people as one. Or with this institutional crisis, are we seeing the way that old inequalities merge with new ones and creating complex patterns? Uh, I showed you a picture before of uh, Teesside graduates. Okay. These are, I have to include, this is, this is Durham University Champagne Society, down the bottom here, which is my, my alma mater, but I, I was never invited to join. <laughs> So, I think we have an institutional crisis and it's masked by an ideology, this voodoo sociology of the policy orthodoxy that blames failure on the lacks of young people. They lack stuff. 
they lack aspiration, they lack skill, social capital, grit, polish, lots of different things over the years. There's what it is that they lack changes, but they, they, they lack something. That's why they don't get on. And this is a this is a, a crisis in ideology that moves the costs of that crisis onto individuals. Lorenzo Antonucci's book, which I just showed there down in the corner, Student Lives in Crisis, is very good at, at looking at the way that labour market sources, welfare state sources, and family sources come together in different combinations to allow different classes of young people to participate in higher education or not. But it shifts the costs onto individuals and their families. And this is a process that works in some people's material interests, in the interests of business, finance companies, debt agencies, corporate HE, and so on. Now there, Kate, is where I finish. Thank you. Thank you.